just real quick before we start. Yeah. Um, official title? What do we call you? That's a great question. I like See, the clown prince of association banking. Okay. That is a question you wait until the podcast because that okay. is perfect content, Shelly. What are you doing? Oh, here? Okay. Well, I, I think I think false starts are great then. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this is Guilty by Association, the Van Oka podcast, where we talk about all things technology and association management. I'm Shelly D'Antonio, here with B.D. Snow, my co-host, and James Bradley of Association Prime. I don't know. Everyone's stuffy about titles. You know, I think titles are important because it, it gives the client some expectation about, you know, what they can expect from you when they interact with the company. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, it doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, I, every time we have a merger, I, I, I get demoted because the bank gets bigger. You know what I mean? And they, they need more room for the more executive layers, vice right. presidents and the, the senior vice so that you get pushed down every time your bank has a merger. So, mm-hmm. uh, but right now I'm, I'm, a, I'm the director of business development strategy. Uh, I think, um, you know, what does that mean? You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of nuance to our business, especially on the banking side mm-hmm. of things. And there's some important decisions that have to be made and it's probably not relevant or interesting to the audience on the association world, but on the banking side, you don't want to be in treasury. You don't want to be in commercial banking. You really want to be in some sort of specialty, you know, uh, arrangement within the bank. And then with that, um, how you do your earnings credit programs and how you design your partnerships, you know, what, what softwares are you going to integrate? You always have to make decisions about where is the industry going, you know, and it was, uh, you know, moments ago, we had a, ch- a chance to talk about uh, the growth and success you guys have had in the last three, four years and, and how that's compared to, you know, some other softwares in the business, say no names. Mm-hmm. And, and it's impressive how quickly you've essentially caught up to, you know, what, what they've done in 15 years. And so um, anyway, it's a long winded answer, but you know, yeah. that, that's actually what, what I do, I guess, at the bank and my title. But I like to have a lot of fun. Yeah. And so I jokingly said, I'm the clown prince of association banking. I <laughs> Well, I like that a lot. We have very similar conversations with certain yeah. positions around here as well, because there are certain positions that I think are pretty cut and dry and other ones that aren't. Um, and so I know that is my least favorite question is, Shelly, what is your title? I'm like, I don't know. Go ask somebody else. Um, what do we make up this time? Uh, I, <laughs> I already got stripped of that one. Yeah. <laughs> really didn't, didn't That's great. It, so. I mean, I'm really um, proud of what we've done. I mean, essentially in about four years, we've gone from zero deposits to $1.4 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that puts us by, I guess, by my estimates, about the sixth largest HOA bank in the country. Mm-hmm. And I love it because the banks that are ahead of us, uh, they completely underestimate us. They, they don't they don't even know what we're doing. So we're very much a jet ski in that way. And I love that. And mm. so it's kind of like a little ninja bank, you know, working through uh, through the HOA <laughs> business. Yeah. But but weirdly, I don't consider them competitors. A lot of them are very good friends. And mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, the business is, is, you know, infinitely small. But I enjoy, uh, you know, going after deals. And, and I, I look at my competition as the no decision. And it's like it's not it's not that they're picking between me and another bank. I'm, it's either picking me or staying where they are. That no decision is my competitor. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like we've, we've built our systems and processes to make you know, people handle the change management, to change softwares, to change banks. And so that's where we've had our, our wins. You know, do we occasionally take one from a, another bank because they haven't facilitated that change for that client? Absolutely. Have I lost clients for that same reason? Absolutely. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of how it works. So yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that change manager. That's been a pretty big theme for us for quite a while, right? Um, so, like, wh- how do you guys approach that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It depends on uh, what scenario you're talking about. But in terms of um, 
you know, with the clients. Yeah. See, on. I would say for the most part, right. The, the recipe to get clients to change banks is to get them to change softwares. Mm. And so changing softwares, it's the lifeblood of what they do. And so because that's the case, uh, it creates a, a, a culture of change in their organization. And so it's a really great opportunity. And a lot of these management companies, their mom and pop shop, or they, you know, maybe have, uh, you know, kind of been somewhat of a lifestyle business. And now this is a chance to really become, you know, the next level. And when you, when you, you know, rip off the bandaid and, and change softwares. Now you've got an opportunity to reinvent your company and you start looking at, you know, Hey, can we, we now are in a virtual environment. Can we do remote team members? You know, we've got reconciliation. Maybe, maybe we don't need as many accounts. Maybe we want to outsource. So you start asking questions about how you're going to, you know, perform the business that you've been doing for many years, let's say, uh, maybe in a different way, in a way you've never thought possible before. And so for us managing that change, we, we usually bring in a uh, third-party consultant that will help with some of the data conversions and some of the obligations that they have because they barely have enough staff to, to service their contracts, much right. less sure. have someone manage the project of change. So we try to help them do that. And so we have, we have first-year dollars that are available you know, in the earnings credit deal, not to make a commercial for the bank. but And we, and we do that intentionally to help them make that transition because we know it's hard. And anybody who says it's not hard is lying. It's sure. always hard. There's always challenges. There's always things that they uh, underestimate. But it's like surgery, right? You know, going into surgery, you're sick. You got something wrong with you. You know, after surgery, you're not ready to go back to work. You know, 10 minutes later, it, it takes some time to heal. But when, when you do get fully healed, you're better than you were before. Right. Right. And that, yeah. that's how we kind of look at change. And that's how we sell it to clients. And um, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be as hard of a sell as it used to be. Uh, I would say five, 10 years ago, uh, getting clients to be comfortable with change was much harder than it is now. I feel like people are much more willing to do it for whatever reason. What do you think, um, what do you think is causing that? Like, why do you think people are a little bit more open? I think the world is a interesting time right now to be mm -hmm. alive. Uh, I think that's part of it. You know, that necessity is the mother of invention, right? And so um, I know I'll just give an example on the remote team member side of the business. This is a, a huge trend we're seeing right now. And uh, one of the reasons for it is they, they have open positions and they have requisitions out and they might get six or seven applicants and they'll call all six or seven to do an interview and only one will show. And the one they, they, they talk to is terrible. And so they're like, you know what? I wasn't really on board with this, you know, outsourcing to the Philippines or Mexico, but now I'm going to give it a try because I need people. And yeah. so, so it, it really necessity is kind of driving some of it. Um, so I, I think that's, probably the best answer I could give you. I, yeah. I mean, you know, who knows? Every business is probably different. You're seeing a lot of changes in ownership too. You know, there's a, the baby boom population. Not only are they to the age where they would transition the business to someone else, uh, they're past it actually. And so yeah. we're, we're seeing transactions, you know, at a, at a clip we've never seen before. So I, I, I think that's, you know, probably the two biggest drivers. We, um, we talk about that a lot too, with just the ownership transfer, the change, um, because we are kind of an industry that does seem like if you started in the industry, you've given it a good long while, you're ready for retirement. And that's where a lot of the mergers and acquisitions are coming from. Does, does that have a high impact on like your population as well with, um, companies buying companies? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it, you know, most of the clients that we lose at the bank are, you know, really through some merger or some sort of consolidation and the acquiring entity has another bank relationship or, you know, has some other, you know, idea of what that should look like. And they want to make a change. Uh, sometimes they hold us ransom, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is fine. You know, we, we try to, you know, always offer a fair value proposition uh, in terms of, you know, what we do economically. But 
some of the big guys can, you know, dictate and, and you know, justifiably so a, a better deal than maybe the, the business that they had acquired. So sometimes that makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. But, um, but yeah, that, that's definitely, it definitely happens a lot. Gotcha. Let's step back for a second and talk yeah. a little bit about like where you came from, how you landed at the bank, like a little bit of your background and your story. You might. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'm the one person you've ever met in your whole life that wanted to be a community manager when they were a little kid and, but they didn't have that degree program in college. No, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> yeah, kidding. sure. I was going to say, I always say the, the no little second <laughs> yeah, grader once yeah. says like, I'm going to be an association manager when I grow up. <laughs> no, about yeah. to disprove me. So. Yeah. All kidding aside. Yeah. I, I you know, that's to- totally true. Right. No one yeah. does that. Um, I really kind of got into the business kind of somewhat, I wouldn't say by accident, but it was, um, you know, from tangent, um, my background's actually an architect. Uh, I have you know, degrees in architecture and urban planning. And so I did land use zoning entitlement. So we essentially develop communities for, you know, national home builders. And I, okay. I was in Tampa is where I was in professional practice. And uh, the downturn in the economy uh, came along and uh, had other ideas for my career. And so, you know, you start looking around for something to do that's recession resistant. And you're like, I don't want to go through this again, Right. And um, anyway, strangely enough, my my mom was on the board of a um, like a metro district. I don't know what they call this particular, but it's like in Florida, they have community development districts, metro. Most people are familiar with that. And it's kind of like it sits above the HOA and the, the dollars come through the tax bill. And mm-hmm. from, most people are familiar in our industry with that concept. And uh, so she's on the board. And so had some access to this. And she was like, hey, this is a great business. And we already kind of knew some of the same management companies because I had dealt with them on the development side. And uh, so I, I was in an MBA program and I had to write a, uh, I took an entrepreneur class mm-hmm. and I had to, had to write a business plan. And I literally wrote a business plan on starting a management company. And I thought, you know, I might be good at this because, you know, I'm an architect. I, 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 uh, I know my way around the money room, as we like to call it, right? The riser mm-hmm. room has got all the mechanical equipment. I figured I could get contracts and I didn't realize, you know, the property management side of the business is great. It's fun. I enjoyed that. I didn't enjoy the community side of it, mm-hmm. the people, you know, the, the homeowners. And there's something irrational about homeowners. It brings out the worst in them uh, when you tell them what they can and can't do. And, and that that part of it, I probably underestimated. But um, so anyway, I started a management company really in the downturn. And um, we, we quickly figured out that if you if you want to grow your company, you have to have you have to solve people's problems. And at that time, delinquency was the big problem. There was, you know, 40% delinquencies in some of the properties we took over and they couldn't pay their bills, including me. Mm. And we would take them on and you're, uh, you know, they're all looking at me like, that's crazy. Why would you do that? that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But, but it was because we saw opportunities. And so Florida was a judicial foreclosure state. And so you could foreclose on behalf of the HOA lien. And so there were some opportunities within their, their problems. And so we really kind of figured that out. And, and so we had, um, we would take on these properties. And so I might manage a property for $800 a month, but I might, you know, get five or six rental properties that they had foreclosed on. And so my arrangement with them was I'll front the money for the foreclosure process that you don't have, but in exchange, I want 50% of the rents. And so then we'd rent out these properties for them, um, you know, subject to mortgage foreclosure. And I got 50% of the rents. Mm -hmm. And then I put a short sale offer on the house every single month. And so uh, by the time the, the foreclosure hearing came along, you know, we go to court and my attorney would say, judge, my client's a really reasonable buyer. He's, you know, already, a, you know, a party to this transaction. And so um, and then there were, 
yeah, that makes sense. And so they go to the other attorney and he's like, well, I'm not authorized to act on any of those offers. So I'd, I'd have to go back and talk to the, to the bank. And, and so, uh, anyway, it would drag out the process and I was just trying to drag it out cause I was getting half the rents mm-hmm. right. and that was the game. And so, so anyway, we figured this out and at some point we were making more money from the rentals and the management side. And so, uh, it was kind of like, Hey, this business model is going to need to pivot here and we're going to need to have, you know, more money coming out of the management side. And anyway, we had a guy come up and really wanted to get into our market. And I thought, paid us a fair price for the business. And I kind of wanted to do something different. And so I did and uh, ended up uh, in the end working for the bank that it was uh, that I that I had all my association deposits with. And that's actually what got me into the HOA banking side of things, because I did not know banks were sales organizations and probably would have scared me if I knew that because I didn't consider myself a salesperson at that time. I just, you know, I figured I was more of a, a property manager, community manager. So, um, but that's, that's kind of how I got into the business. It's kind of how I got into the bank business. And then a couple of years at that bank, went to another bank. Uh, at some point I, I did a stint at Associa and was, uh, you know, one of their branch presidents out in Colorado, which was really fun. I got to take on a really challenging, um, a company that was, you know, had, had to, you know, the guy had actually passed away from a heart attack and it was kind of a bad situation. They were losing properties and, uh, just overall the morale was bad and, at that point in my career, I had not managed uh, 70 employees, which they had. And it was just a great opportunity to take on something that was just, there's nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we did that. And while I was out there in Colorado, I learned a lot about insurance claims and, and you know, the impact of that in our HOA business. And so we got into it, the consulting side of, of you know, in doing insurance claims. And we were consulting with some banks uh, around the country. And one of those uh, just made an offer that was too good to be true. So you know, here we are. So that's kind of the long story of how we got here, but it's kind of neat because, um, you know, uh, this business is really kind of a great business in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so there's a lot of opportunity and, and, you know, depending on what you do and, and how you service the industry. And at this point, uh, there's so many friends you have in all these years and it, it really is yeah. kind of a, it's a neat little industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. How would you compare the differences between banking on the HOA side versus some of like the commercial space and some of those other spaces you guys are operating in? Oh, wow. That's uh, there's not enough time on this podcast to answer <laughs> that. Um, but I, I mean, I, I would say, you know, twofold, right? Uh, there's deposits and loans, right? On the loan side, it's pretty simple, right? The, the loans, um, you don't have sophisticated borrowers. You know, you don't have people giving personal guarantees, um, you really have to understand, you know, what the improvement is and what's the impact going to be to the individual unit owner that's going to ultimately be making the payment. And so while the bank does the business with the association, the association, you know, has that payment or ability to make that payment from the individual unit owners. So if they're paying $100 today and it's going to go to $120, fine, that's no problem. But if it's $100 today, it's going to go to 900 That's probably a problem. So you have to just understand, like, how does it impact the average, you know, unit owner in that? So it's not difficult. I think commercial bankers are probably a lot more talented than the HOA bankers are as it relates to credit. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, commercial credit's very sophisticated. It's amazing. Uh, But it's very nuanced. And there's a lot of commercial guys that really just don't do a good job at at HOA banking. And it takes time and you have to do lots of deals and you have to look at lots of deals uh, to know when you've got a good one. So I would say on the loan side, that's true. Mm-hmm. And then again, on the deposit side, where it's a little different is, you know, traditional treasury products. Treasury is a term at a bank that basically means the electronic or the payments side of the business. 
you know, banks have a treasury division. And they try to have products that will work for all different types of businesses. And in our business, as you know, because of you know, the volume of units, it's so specialized. Everything has to be, you know, auto reconciliation. There's, there's all these matches, the way that you filter the data and the information that integrated banking is, is basically a form of fintech at this point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if, if you don't have these high level integrations and you don't understand them and you don't know who you're working with and you don't have, you know, the tech on the bank side to, to match up with these partners, you just can't compete. I mean, you just, you can't be in the space and then forget about the economics of it. That's a whole nother story too. Right. You know, and normally in commercial banks, uh, the, the clients are usually paying for some of these products, check scanners and, you know, using lock boxes and right. But in, but in our business, uh, you know, the, the starting point is free. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then it's a compensation, you know, what else are you going to help me with kind of thing. So understanding those kind of three legged of, of the stool is, uh, it's, it's a big difference from a commercial bank to, to the specialized banks for sure. So you mentioned that transition between like commercial and the HOA side, do you see much movement back and forth or do you find that folks kind of stay in their lane when it comes to, you're talking about, uh, bankers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know a lot of association bankers that have gone back to the commercial side of the bank. Uh, once they kind of come to the dark side, as I like to call it, they usually uh, find a home. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the people. I, has, I think it has a lot to do with the culture, uh, sales culture within the bank. I think being a commercial banker is very difficult. You know, you have mm-hmm. to work on credit. You also have to get out and sell and and really, you know, hit the pavement and be constantly making relationships. I mean, think about like a financial advisor. You know, he's mm-hmm. got to always yeah. be kind of kind of hustling and on the association side it's much more relationship based and so you spend a lot of time to get deals but once you have that in- initial investment of a couple of years to build up a pipeline of, of people that you potentially could work with uh, you get where you know the deals kind of they start to roll in and they kind of can you know sustain you where you don't have to to go hustle in that same way and it kind of creates a little bit better lifestyle i think for the bankers so mm-hmm. um, i don't know a lot of people that go back i mean i'm sure there you know maybe some that didn't get enough time or, you know, maybe, maybe don't like it or don't like that our, our business is uh, not as, you know, maybe sexy as, uh, you know, trying to make a $50 million loan to some operating business. So, you know, who knows, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that's probably, you know, I'm sure it's happened. Just not very common. Sure. That makes sense. Um. So thinking about the the difference with those bankers between the, the HOA and the, the commercial side, and you mentioned just the fact that the, the it's very different as you're looking at those loans. What are some, like getting down to the unit owner, you talked about that, but what are some of the other things that associations should be aware of if they know that they need to get a loan? Um, or what are some things that they can do long-term plan to not have to find themselves in that, that situation and make sure that they've got the right... Oh man, that's uh, that's a great question, right? So I would say a, a couple things, right? I mean, delinquency is first and foremost in, in an association. I'd say that's probably forty or fifty percent of the underwriting decision for most banks, um, and, and depending on the bank, depends on how they score different things. But there's kind of a couple metrics we look at, and we look at delinquency two ways, right? There's like there's the number of of units that are delinquent compared to the overall number of total units. And then there's also the dollar amount of the delinquency relative to the, you know, one year's worth of the annual budget. And so those two, you know, together kind of tell you the story of delinquency. Um, I personally think delinquency is kind of a short-term problem. You know, it, it, you know, essentially the meter's always running. And so at some point, if somebody quits paying, you know, can foreclose. There's different, you know, remedies that are available to to try to make that happen. So 
Um, you just have to kind of understand what is the, you know, what are the drivers of that? Sometimes they just change management companies and therefore just change lockboxes. And now there's a spike. And so it's like you looked at last year's year end numbers and they're fine. But right now they're a little bit high. So you have to understand the why behind mm-hmm. some of the delinquency. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I'd say delinquency is the, the jumping off point. I'd say the other th- that, you know, big thing you look at is you know, what I like to call payment shock. And that's what I described to you earlier. If you're paying, you know, $100 today and you, you know, you got to pay $200 in this new, you know, increased budget or special assessment scenario, that's a 100% increase. Well, what is that relative to the unit value? I mean, if you've got a million dollar unit and you've got a 100% increase in dues, it's not a problem. But if you've got $60,000 units, that's probably going to be tough for those folks. So again, it goes back to, you know, what is the individual, you know, homeowner's impact? So those are the kind of things we look at. Every bank has different metrics and, and we try to make it somewhat of a, a quantifiable process. But there's, there's also, you know, an art to it as well and, and trying to figure out, you know, okay, well, can you handle this sophisticated project? I mean, you, you know, you know, you got a board of uh, two teachers and a, a fireman, you know, can they, can they handle, you know, flying helicopters to, you know, put uh, mechanical equipment on the top of the roof? I mean, that's, a, that's a pretty sophisticated project, right? Well, who's going to help you guys do this? Are you going to hire an engineering firm? You're going to have architects? Like, who's going to be on the project team to help, you know, help you guys execute on this? So you're always looking for, you know, to help them put the deals together. And I think that's kind of, you know, at our bank, probably the, the thing that's made us successful is helping people figure out, you know, what is the ask? You know, who is the team? You know, how do we structure it? What meetings need to happen? And you know, so helping them organize all of that is is really the art of it for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's an interesting thing, you know, with, with all the delinquencies that, you know, we're, you know, we really haven't had any the last couple of years because the real estate market, it's, you know, they're just it's not really been an issue. I, mm-hmm. I haven't really turned a deal down in recent memory for delinquency. Cause it's just probably since about 2012 or 13. I mean, it's been that good of a, you know, of a, of a run. Right. So it may come well, into, into question again at some point. Um, but it's kind of been, you know, more the other side of it. it's like, Hey, you've got, uh, you know, $10 million worth of problems, but you only have the credit worthiness for maybe two or three of it. So mm-hmm. what two or three are we going to do? Well, let's start with those life safety issues. Let's let's see what you know what longevity can we get out of some of these other elements, and so you're just helping them figure it out. And unfortunately, the, the reserve study business is kind of broken, in, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they only get them every three, four, five years. Right. They're they're pretty much out of date once they you know make one you know decision that's not in accordance with that plan, and you know, that, and then you just the data is just sitting there and just collects dust, and a lot of them don't even read it or look at it or understand it or Maybe they're just hoping that they're going to be able to have credit worthiness when mm-hmm. these youthful life, you know, comes due on these different these different assets. But um, it's interesting, you know what what can they do? I, I think I think you know it's it's interesting. I know that uh, CAI, you know, they had a, a report they published in in response to the building that collapsed in in Miami, and um, in my opinion, very noticeably, there was no bankers included in that report. So if you go through and you look at the back of the report, I was looking. This is the old geek academic in me here, right? So I, I go to the very back page, very first thing, and I'm like, who are the contributors, right? right? And I want to know who worked on this. And when I go through there, there's no bankers involved, right? You've got managers and PCAMs and you got reserve study, you know, folks, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, no bankers were involved. And it's like, how how is this, you know, a, a thorough report? So I'm, I'm a little critical of CAI in this, in this way. But, you know, moving forward, I, I think there has to be some solutions to help associations on the loan side mm-hmm. and, 
right now, banks, you know, really, they, they're somewhat cherry picking their deals. They really don't have any incentive to take a lot of risk on association loans, even though there's not a big history of loan defaults in our business. And so uh, something's mm-hmm. got to give on the lending side there. But I think, you know, also the developers need to have some some skin in the game to fix this as well. And I, I very specifically, I think um, when you have transfers, I know in our neighborhood, um, again, I mentioned we were talking in, in the opener about uh, my swim team board, you know, I got 1400 homes in my neighborhood and we've got multiple pools. We've got clubhouses and I don't even know, probably 25 parks. I mean, it's a, it's almost its own city, right? Mm-hmm. What we run and we are fully funded reserves. And I don't know how many associations are fully funded on their reserve. Not and actually yeah. we, we're actually, we actually have surpluses. Okay. Okay. And, and you know why we have it? It's really interesting. It's because every transaction requires a quarter point from the from the uh, buyers and the sellers and the transaction that goes into the capital fund. Mm-hmm. So every time there's a resale, both people are contributing and that that's really why it's fully funded. So, and why is that in there? Well, that's in our documents. The mm-hmm. Developer did that. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to see the developers, you know, have some mechanisms that, you know, will, will help the associations. It'll force them into uh, funding some of these reserves. And quite honestly, you can't rely on the board to make that decision because they it's a competing odds with, you know, them saying, okay, I'm, I'm 80 years old. I'm not going to be here in 30 years. Why do I want to reserve for this, uh, this boiler that, you know, is going to be replaced 30 years from now? He's right. So why would he increase his dues, have the correct, you know, funding amount to do that? It doesn't make sense for him individually. Mm-hmm. Well, then he happens to be on the board. And, and so now he's making a decision for all of his, his, you know, community members. So it's interesting, right? Yeah, it is. And reserve studies, it's been such a hot topic lately. Yeah. Um, and knowing that, like you said, like there need to be more options for loans. If you had to grab your little magic eight ball or your, your glass looking ball or whatever your prediction um, is with things in, you know, like just the economic environment, interest rates are going up, things like that. Do you see it being harder for these associations to start getting some loans? Um, or do you think it's all going to work its way out? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the credit quality, right, in terms of their ability to qualify, I don't see a, a whole lot of massive changes as it relates to that, at least in the, the near future. Maybe if this is a, a very prolonged recession, obviously we're, a lot of people are talking about that with, with the inflation and stagflation, you know, phrases you're hearing thrown around now. Um, in the short run, I don't see any issues with the qualifying for it. It's definitely going to cost more. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, you know, some of the folks in the business that we compete with, and uh, they're, you know, they're throwing around some loan numbers that are scary. I mean, I've heard uh, on the way over here, 30-year loan rates are, you know, right around 7% already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anybody that's, you know, done anything with their house or bought in the last year, that's that number seems, you know, amazingly high. Well, commercial loan rates are going to do the same thing, right? The longer the term, kind of the, the more risk, and you need to have a little higher rate for a return on that. And so associations need long-term you know, loans. They need 10, 12, 15-year loans. Most of their problems can't be solved in you know, four, five, you know, seven years. So, so I think for the most part, right, it's going to cost more for sure. Is that, going to, is that, is that increase in percentage going to make them you know, less able to qualify? Probably not. Uh, where there could be some issues is, um, you know, if this starts to impact people's employment mm-hmm. and they, you know, obviously, you know, lose jobs and can't make your mortgage payment. And then, then we get back to the delinquency issue. That's that's a possibility. I, I mean, I'm not qualified uh, from an economic. I love economics, but I'm not qualified to you know, make any kind of, uh, you know, assertions about what's, you know, possibly going to happen in that area. I do feel like strangely 
Um, there's definitely work out there for people if somebody wants to work. So if, if you were to lose your job doing something, I mean, for the most part, you may not love your replacement job, but you can get one. So mm-hmm. for the foreseeable, I, I don't see any issues, but you know, I could be wrong. I've been wrong once before. You can ask my wife about that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any trends in the industry that you're really excited about? Yeah, I kind of mentioned this earlier, like the remote team member, yeah. uh, the remote staffing model. I'm, I'm really excited about that because I feel like, um, you know, labor is our biggest expense as a management company owner. And, you know, there seems to be a general attitude of the people that you bring into your businesses that this is hard and, and a lot of folks don't make it. And there's a lot of turnover at that property manager, assistant, mm-hmm. you know, in that area. And I, I say property manager. I know I'll, I'll probably get death threats now. Community <laughs> managers. Come on, James. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of turnover there. And so one of, the, one of the really cool things that we've gotten in feedback from our clients that have gone in this remote team environment is they're blown away on the attitude of the workers and just mm-hmm. how delighted they are to be a part of the company and do the work. And, uh, and I think they're probably really surprised that, you know, a town like Guadalajara, Mexico, that's like a hotbed for RTN, right? It, it's its a metropolitan city. I mean, it's as big as Chicago is. Like, there's a Ferrari yeah. dealership and a, you know, Maserati dealer. I mean, you you know, these people get Starbucks on their way to the office. It's very much like working, you know, here in the States. And so it's not, it's not what you might think in your mind about working in other countries. There just happens to be this, you know, economic arbitrage that they work at, you know, half the price of what employment costs here, right? So, so I'm really excited about that. I think that gives the management companies a fighting chance in being able to provide the scope um, on budget and not have to cut corners. And so that's that's exciting. I'm 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 happy for the industry as a whole for that. Um, that's definitely one one trend I like. Um, the other trend I like is uh, there's a company out west that's uh, starting to do like uh, subscription reserve studies. I mentioned that I mentioned that was a broken model. And so one of the things with that is, you know, they're looking at, hey, what if we start, you know, providing these monthly, every single month? Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh, neat. Right. So, so I think that's a great thing. And, and really from a banker's standpoint, you know, having the board be hyper aware of the reserve situation will probably drive some more loan demand. But this is a real problem, even if they don't get loans. I mean, we're, we're going to hit our numbers with or without them doing this. But I just think as a whole, we have an obligation to try to elevate our industry. And, and you know, what mm-hmm. that building collapsed really, that hurt us all. Right. Yeah. And, it, and it, it, it chipped away at our credibility and professionalism. And, and so we got to get that back. And so we, we've got to we got to have some some changes. So those are a couple trends that I'm real excited about and, you know, kind of want to watch. Um, you know, we you know, we have our consulting group at the bank and we had you know built a wheel of you know, what does that consulting arm consist of? And, and so we had talked about doing a, a futures, you know, type uh, think tank. And we might bring, you know, some of the minds of the business and we've got a, you know, a list of folks that went, hey, what if we brought these people in a room and we started talking about things? You know, what would that look like? What could that be? And uh, one of the things that we came out with is, you know, what what will we track? You know, what we talk about? And so there was different things and, you know, drones, for example, right? And it's like, you know, we, we still do inspections in our car. We drive around and, you know, see the trash cans or, you know, you need pressure washing, whatever it is. Well, you know, pretty soon we're going to have drone deliveries, probably from Amazon. And just like you can with Google, you probably will be able to buy the subscription video of these drones almost real time. And so now with AI, you can, you could literally, you know, probably almost have a real time always on inspection. That's probably not that far away. I know that sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but you can probably take that and uh, especially, you know, with, with outsourcing to other countries, you could probably very inexpensively do violation sweeps with, you know, video from, 
the Amazons of the world on some sort of subscription and you'd be able to outsource that in your business. That's amazing. That's yeah. very intriguing. You idea. know, so there's different things that we see that, you know, could, could be a possibility. <laughs> uh, are they here yet? Is anybody doing them? Not really. Uh, there are some, there, you know, for me, I'm always like talking to our clients. I'm like, where do you think things are going? And if you think that's where it's going, try to make decisions that are harmonious with that so that when it heads that direction, you're well positioned to, to go with the trend. You're not swimming against the current. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, talk about that change management. That's, that's really kind of what, what we try to instill in folks. But really at the end of the day, you know, if you have a choice between going to a board meeting or, you know, researching the trends in, in drone technology, you're going, you're getting prepared for your board meeting. And so they don't have time to, to think about some of that stuff, but fortunately we do. And it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a part of the fun part of our job. So it really is fun to be a part of that process in this industry of that such rapid pace and evolution, right? Moving from some of these dinosaur legacy processes, systems, methodologies into relying a little bit more and utilizing technology and leveraging it to, to drive that business value and those bottom line numbers, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm sure everyone's probably seen this, but there's been a lot of private equity firms that have found their way into our business in mm-hmm. the last few years. Mm-hmm. And I get a big kick out of it because, you know, a lot of them have, you know, Harvard and Yale, you know, really impressive, you know, economic, uh, I'm sorry, uh, educational backgrounds. And, uh, and I love how they come in and they just think they're going to upend, you know, us, you know, uh, us common folks. Right. And then they realize, man, this business is actually pretty sophisticated and there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of really smart people that are doing some interesting things here. And I think they are, I think they're actually taken aback by, uh, that they, they don't have the impact and the splash that they thought they were going to. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's kind of a really interesting you know, thing to kind of experience with them as you, as you have conversations, you know, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll reach out to you and they haven't made an acquisition yet. And then now they've got a couple of them and then you see them somewhere and start having the conversations. And so you get the feedback and it's like, it's like, yeah, I knew, I knew, (laughs) you know, you probably were disappointed with, uh, with how it came out, but you know, we knew that would be the case. So, but it's interesting. Grand visions of getting rid of coupon books. Oh man. I I mean, does anybody use coupon books for like, um, footstools, you know, Footstool. prop the table up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've heard that. It's I, a, you know, I, I, I heard Lisa Turner tell a story about that. She had a she had a client that just said he only used it to like prop up yeah. the table or level it out or something <laughs> like that. I love that story. Yeah, I mean, um, it's funny. I don't I don't pay our bills at our house. Uh, my my wife does that. Thankfully, uh, I'd probably pay my bills late if I had to pay them. Uh, but um, you know. Who, who uses a coupon book? I mean, I think that's a crazy thing. So I think it's pretty interesting that lockboxes are still processing the volumes of payments they are. Um, I certainly thought, if you'd asked me 10, 11 years ago, uh, you know, certainly I would have thought the volumes would start to come down as the older aging population, that baby, they would have kind of aged out a little more and younger folks like to pay bills with mobile apps. And, you know, it's kind of instant gratification. You know, I think about paying my bill 11 o'clock at night. I want to pay it right then and there. Right. I don't want to wake up in the morning and sit down and write out paper checks and send them in the mail. And, and a lot of people are surprised, you know, with the bill pay check, sometimes they get converted to paper payments. And, right. but, uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, I still can't believe that, you know, there's, that's such a big business in our industry still. Sitting back five years ago, we really anticipated higher levels of digital adoption. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see that juxtaposition that these management companies are put into, right, where they have these certain clients that are really adamant on coupon books, paper, in-person meetings, and then catering to, you know, another set of clients that are looking for electronic communications, automations, those types of things, and then catering to both of those sets of clients within what they're trying to fit within a standard set process, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
talking to some of our part, um, industry partners out West and, um, those digital adoption numbers are so low. It's like 20%, 25%, um, which yeah. we would expect, especially in like SoCal, Seattle area, like, okay, it's going to be maybe closer to 50, even right. 75, right? And uh, no, it's still really low. So interesting. I mean, maybe maybe there's uh, less accessibility to ownership out there because mm-hmm. it is so expensive to live. Maybe that's part of the reason and the actual average age of the owner is mm-hmm. is actually older. Uh, but that is, I mean, to point. your point, I, mean, I, I just said a moment ago, I mean, 10 years ago, I would have thought we'd be much farther mm-hmm. along in digital adoption. So it just, just hasn't happened for whatever reason. And, um, you know, until it does, you know, God bless the coupon guys, right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, if, you know, if you talk to them, that's kind of their lost leader anyways. I think they all have, you know, positioned for that as well. I mean, if you talk to most of them they they'll tell you that. They want to do the mailers for, you know, the violation letters. They want to do the board packages. You know, they, they want to do the other things that are not the coupon books. I think they do the coupon books at a loss or close to, you know, break even because they, you know, they're just really trying to have the relationship mm-hmm. and then push, you know, the other, the other products that they do. And which is great too, right? Go back to that remote team member. I mean, if you've got a, you know, someone in Mexico working on violation letters, you know, they need to be able to submit that violation letter to the print shop so it can be printed and, mm-hmm. you know, sent in the mail you know, that, that, you know, the old days of, you know, we had a folding machine and a, uh, you know, a, a was it Pitney Bowes machine, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I we, we, were, called ours, we called ours Penelope. Penelope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was high cotton when I got, that. I was like, Hey, this is what we have here. This is, <laughs> this is high speed stuff. Right. And, and it's like, now if you have that, it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's the old way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so what PhD program are you going to do? Uh, so behavioral economics, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a there's a guy over there. His name's Dan Ariely. Uh, that's over uh, the behavioral economics program, which is within their psychology, you know, department. And I'm really fascinated by the human brain and and why mm. and how people make decisions and how these external biases come in and really derail, you know, really logical thinking, right? And if you understand these bias and you can you can use them, I want to say to manipulate people's decisions, but maybe have favor you know, and, and have mm. preference with them. And you can actually position some of your offerings uh, to be harmonious with how people think and do things. That's really important, right? And so this is, we actually incorporate a lot of this into the bank. Yeah, so one of the things that we do is, um, for example, he has, he calls it the Ikea effect, right? But it's, it's uh, anyone who helps build something has a higher level of ownership of it. And so what okay. we do is when we do a pro forma and we're going to say, okay, you want to have a relationship with us, what does this look like? We do that collaboratively with them instead of asynchronously, like, here's what we offer you and then have them negotiate back maybe something. Instead of doing it that way, we do it together. And this is something management companies are probably really bad at. They're like, this is our per door cost. You know, that's a terrible way to do it. It's like, well, no, let's work together. This is what it costs me to provide the services. If you want to pay less, then as a board, you should do more. Right. And then and it's a it's a function of time. Mm-hmm. Right. So these are the kind of things. And some of them are just quirky, small things like we don't call them contracts. Why? Because contracts have to be reviewed by attorneys, right? They have to be negotiated. But agreements, they're between friends. They're between, and so we, we, try, to, we try to bridge from, you know, having a market relationship with them to a social relationship. Mm-hmm. And so, and, that, and it isn't completely, like I said, to manipulate. We, we prefer to be in a social contract with everyone, right? I mean, that's the difference between marriage and dating. Because when you're dating, you're trying to find every reason to break up. But when you're married, you're finding every reason to, you know, make it work, mm-hmm. right? And so, and, and that's the difference between that market social norm. And so we use a lot of the things that I, you know, have read and learned over the, the years. We've kind of like baked it into how we deliver, you know, our, our you know, our offers with clients and, and how we interact with them. And 
it's it's an interesting thing. I, I've I've actually done some some talks on how this can be done in, in the HOA space and different elements. But um, you know, it, it's every every business should you know definitely study up on it and see how they can get better at it. And even with their own employees and how you you know how you interact with your team, it, it could it could be uh, hugely beneficial for a lot of folks in our business. And, you know, one of the things and Greg and I talk a lot about like uh, corporate culture because I'm I'm a geek. I love that stuff. One of my favorite things he, he talks about at Advantica is you guys have this, and I'm probably going to butch it, but it's like a no bureaucratical, no big company bullshit yeah. is yeah. I think what you guys call it. Yeah. And I absolutely love that because you got to, you got to watch out for when the barbarians become the bureaucrats. Yeah. Right. And I love that. So anyway, well, yeah. it, it means we have a, a lot of folks that are aligned with that too, and that are scrappy and are going to work hard and don't want to do with BS. I'm going to be real with you. <laughs> You know, and so yep. it's definitely helped us bring in some really quality folks that align with that vision. Yeah, that's yeah, great. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Guilty by Association. We'll see you next time. <laughs>